I'm author and critic David Agronoff. I'm a horror and science fiction author, critic, and researcher. In this podcast, I wanted to provide in-depth interviews and panel discussions with everyone from New York Times bestselling authors to researchers, musicians, and anyone I find interesting. Welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Welcome to a special episode of Postcards from a Dying World. I have already been nerding out with Ray Naylor for a little bit about Philip K. Dick, but we're here to talk about his work and he his debut novel, uh, Mountain in the Sea, which at this point in the year is my favorite read of the year, uh, one of my favorite reads of the last couple of years. I'm David Agronoff. Um, I... I'm the host of this here podcast. I'm the author of the upcoming The Last Night to Kill Nazis, which is a World War II. Uh, it takes place in the last day of World War II with vampires. And um, I'm doing a book tour for that. So I have to promote that in Southern California with um, Cody Goodfellow and John Shirley um, in uh, San Diego, LA and Encinitas, September 14th through the 17th. So I definitely want to see folks out there for that and we'll have fun, uh, cool stuff to give away there, but on to the show proper Ray Naylor is, um, a longtime columnist with Asmoff's correct. Um, and, uh, are, you've written a lot of columns for Asmoff and not columns, uh, but I've written a lot of short stories for them. Yeah, I, I also wrote one editorial for them. Yeah. Okay. You've been in Asmoff's a lot. I know that. And that's one yeah. of the ways that most people, knew you before um, this book hit the streets. And let me tell you, the buzz already about Mountain in the Sea is off the charts. And it was, I didn't, I heard so much buzz about it that I went into it cold. I got the book without knowing a single thing about it. I just knew that I heard the buzz. And um, I recommend that people read it that way. If they can, they can pause and come back. I suppose if they trust (laughs) me, But we're going to talk about the book and I'm mostly going to stay, I'm not going to promise to stay spoiler free because I really want to talk about a lot of the aspects of the book, but I will give a spoiler warning before we get super serious towards the end, just to let people know that ahead of time. Um, But if you trust me that this is a masterpiece um, and we, anybody who listens to my podcast knows I love to nerd out about process. So we're going to do a lot of process talk. Ray, can you tell the folks who you are and where you came from with this debut novel? Yes. So um, let's see where to start. Um, I was born in Quebec, grew up in California, in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, mostly in Fremont, California, which is kind of a part of Silicon Valley, South Bay. Uh, now it's all been absorbed by San Jose and all that stuff there. Right. Went to UC Santa Cruz uh, for my undergrad. Um, I took a degree in modern literature, and and then I joined the Peace Corps in 2003, and I went to Turkmenistan. Um, and from 2003 to 2022, I basically lived overseas, either as a Peace Corps volunteer or afterwards working in some international education uh, programming. And then after that, I joined the Foreign Service in 2010. And 
the mountain and the sea comes out of my work in the foreign service um, in Vietnam on the Condal archipelago where the book is set. And then other parts of it are set in other places where I've, I've lived and worked. But yeah, throughout all that, that's kind of my day job stuff. Now I'm back in the United States. I work for, uh, for NOAA in their Marine Protected Areas Center as their international advisor. In August, I'll go change jobs again and I'll be at George Washington University as their diplomat in residence and a resident uh, scholar there for a year visiting scholar that should be should be fun in their international uh science and technology policy institute i like and, that uh, campus a lot i i went to a very radical conference there once so oh awesome I yeah appreciate i appreciate it it's great it's, uh, <laughs> it's it's down it's down sort of downtown and the nice thing is it's not that far from my daughter's daycare so it shortens my sort of commute and stuff but that'll be good but yeah um i first published in asimov's in 2015 and uh, that was my first science fiction publication. But before that, I wrote a lot of crime fiction and noir and uh, a lot of just everything, poetry, travelogues, lots of stuff. Um, ever since I was 16, published my first novella when I was 25. So it's kind of been one of these things where a lot of people know me as a science fiction writer, but I've got 30 years of, of writing in general under my belt. Uh, so I didn't kind of come from nowhere in 2015. But what happened was I had been writing in other genres. I had never written anything science fiction. I got a science fiction idea and I decided I would write it. Uh, the idea was pretty simple. It was just the idea that if we live forever, um, it wouldn't matter very much because we can't remember anything that happened like 40 or 50 years ago very well. So we would just be these drifting kind of 80 year chunks of knowledge that moved you know, forward through time and slowly lost the memories of things that had happened to us a long time ago. And the story was called Mutability. I, I followed my own policy, which is I submit to the top magazines first because you know, if you're gonna get rejected, aim high. And uh, I submitted to Asimov's and uh, Sheila Williams there decided to publish the story. And so after that, I started publishing in Asimov's and then Clark's World uh analog as well um nightmare and light speed and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction i think i've had maybe 20 somewhere between 25 and 30 professional sales and then i started writing the mountain and the sea in 2019. now do, before we get into how you got into science fiction do you consider yourself a science fiction writer or um did that just kind of happen and do you still consider yourself just a writer because I know some people kind of, you know, bristle at the time. We know Philip K. Dick had a hard time with the, with the concept of science fiction writer and had to kind of accept it at a certain point. Yeah, I, I mean, <clears throat> I wouldn't say that I, I bristle at it. I, I have a lot of respect for science fiction. And so I don't think that it's, you know, um, anything. I don't think there's anything bad about being called a science fiction writer. I don't take it as an insult. Um, I don't feel limited by that. I, and I certainly didn't start out as a science fiction writer. And I, I'm not a science fiction. I would say this. I may be right now very much a writer of speculative fiction because I do write some some horror and other and other things as well. I also continue to write mainstream short stories and published a few in the last few years. But I'm largely writing in, in this in the science fiction genre because that's kind of where my mind is right now. And well, so you're damn good at it. Thank so. you. 
<laughs> but um, but I'm not a science fiction reader. And I think that's what makes me a little bit different as a science fiction writer. And I don't mean that I don't read science fiction, but that um, science fiction probably only accounts for between say two and 5% of my writing intake, most of which is science writing, nonfiction, um, and, and like other things. And when I, when I read fiction, I'm largely reading like mainstream kind of stuff right now, but I mean, that changes over time. So, so I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not as like genre knowledgeable as I would like to be sometimes about things and there's big holes, you know, in my, in my sort of science fiction knowledge, but I'm also like really aware of not wanting to copy people accidentally and not wanting to absorb too much. So I do, I do sort of protect myself from that. I think by staying outside of the genre as much as I can in my reading habits. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of neutral about the term. What I, what I don't like about, about it is, well, it's like anything else. A qualification is always, sounds like a qualification, right? So science fiction writer just sounds like it's less than simply writer because it implies that there's other things that you can't do. Um, and I don't like that part of it. I don't like to feel like I'm being pigeonholed. At the same time, I don't buy any of the negative stereotypes about about science fiction that kind of float around. So I'm not I'm not hurt by yeah. being called a science fiction writer. Well, you know, uh, uh, John Shirley, my one of one of my mentors, a cyberpunk legend. He he doesn't read science fiction anymore either. Hasn't in in a very long time. Uh, mostly doesn't read fiction very much anymore, unless <laughs> you know we push him and say like. For example, uh, your book is one book that I told him, I was like, John, you really got to read this. Um, and uh, for example, but, um, and I think that sometimes uh, that whole like be trying to be conscious of not wanting to be derivative of what everybody else is doing is, is a strong pull to that. But who were your early influences in science fiction? Who were the ones that, that you read early in your life or that you feel like, you know, kind of got your brain thinking speculatively in general? Well, I mean, I wasn't in general thinking speculatively. So it's kind of interesting, right? Um, I mostly started writing and started writing like noir and kind of crime fiction and detective right. fiction. So if I was going to say who my big influences were, it was like Patricia Highsmith, Dorothy B. Hughes, Raymond Chandler, um, people like that. And they sort of remit Dashiell Hammett, right? And they sort of remain my influences as a writer because I think that the mids, I mean, I think that some of the best writing sentence for sentence has been done in, in crime fiction, in American crime fiction, especially. And, um, you know, people like, like Dorothy B. Hughes is really hard to beat, especially if you're talking about like free and direct discourse and this kind of like amazing things that she's able to do with point of point of view and uh and, and some of those things that I still go back and, and and sort of study you know like reading the beginning of the her book the expendable man there's like this moment where you're like holy crap right <laughs> you know about about 40 or 50 pages in where all of the weird things that are going on suddenly click for you you know and you realize what she's done with point of view it's, it's really amazing so so I kind of Writing wise, that's been my uh, my school uh, of a sort. And then, but when you're talking about like science fiction writers, 
James Tiptree Jr., right? Alice mm-hmm. Sheldon. I mean, um, I I really admire I admire the writers who who really cared about atmosphere and style a lot. Um, you know, uh, not style over substance, but like the use of style as a way of telling a story that, um, I mean, I really like Gene Wolfe. And this is kind of since I've started writing science fiction more. Um, Philip K. Dick, I grew up reading. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I started reading, I had an odd kind of journey into science fiction because when I started reading as a little kid, my mother was very much like a classicist and she really wanted me to read Shakespeare and she really wanted me to read like the canon um this is like when I was six right so um when I read science fiction she was like okay well you could read science fiction but you're going to read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea you know you're going to read like Wells and you're going to read all of these like classics so I was a kid in the 80s reading stuff from like the 19th late 19th and early 20th century more than I was reading the other stuff because my my reading was sort of dictated for a, a long time by my mother's interests in uh you know in guiding my my reading and I'm I'm extremely happy for that because I, I feel like you know I got very grounded in that science fiction before moving on to the sort of American golden age stuff um, right you know uh so I have a different it gives me a, a bit of a different sort of um idea about what science fiction is and and kind of where it comes from um like a little bit less in some ways parochial i feel like than people who grew up on the american stuff and the pulps only and don't see back past that to poe and all of these sort of antecedents to to the genre um have you read much uh have you read much tony boucher have you read any of because you know he did both worlds he was a crime you know, it's funny because the crime and mystery people claim him and, and uh-huh. think he's theirs. And then the sci-fi people also yeah. because he founded yeah. Magazine of Fantasy and fi- Science Fiction. So Right, right. And there's, there's so much crossover between those genres, too. Um, you know, I think that especially when people were working as writers and doing the yeah. you know short story market and the pulps and then like the paperback originals and stuff, you got a lot of a lot of crossover. Like I think about... Um, who would be a good a good example you know uh fritz like fritz fritz lieber right yeah you know that like he he could almost write in any genre i think ray bradbury is another another example like he totally. he always had the feeling of writing just genre like it sort of crossed over wherever he wanted it to to go right it could be a little detective it could be a little more over here um, you know, you would think you were getting a science fiction story, but it would end up in horror, you know, et cetera. I think people were a little bit more flexible. I also think that a lot of these, um, a lot of the genre definitions and the and the canon were formed later than, uh, they were defined much later. And so their definitions are quite often um, an attempt to constrain genre to a certain viewpoint. Um, so I, you know, if you, if you sort of listen to some of the descriptions of what golden age science fiction was, it actually doesn't include something like 80% probably of the writers who were working in golden age science fiction, right? Mm -hmm. There's no good definition of what was really going on unless you reduce it to just a few of the figures in a big field. 
Well, you know, without Tony Boucher too, we wouldn't have Philip K. Dick because it was him wandering into Dick's record store to buy opera records and them talking, which really like Phil had so much respect for Tony because he he had gotten to the point where he thought sci-fi was kid stuff mm. and he didn't want anything to do with it. And then Tony Boucher says, oh, well, if you want to write science fiction on Thursday nights, I teach the one dollar class. And uh-huh. by the way, that house has a plaque outside of it in Berkeley, if anyone wants mm-hmm. to go visit it, um, which is really cool. But uh, anyways, on to this book. Let's get into Mountain in the Sea, because um, I think we got a good idea of where you came from writing wise. It sounds like that reading background is, was a huge part of what, you know, got you interested in, in being a writer is it sounds like your mom was serious about you reading. And I think anybody who that's for example in my household reading was a very serious thing too mm-hmm. and i think those of us who grow up with that serious reading often want to try our hand at this you know we want mm-hmm. to do it right mm-hmm. so um you were writing short stories but do you remember where the inspiration for mountain in the sea came were you looking for an idea to expand into a novel or was it a short story that kind of just kept growing in your mind what how did it start so I was really interested in, uh, and I still am interested in biosemiotics. And I was reading a lot in, about biosemiotics, which is basically like an expansion of the idea of semiotics to biology. So the idea is that life is fundamentally about communication, and that's between cellular signaling all the way up through culture, right? And wow. um, and that the physical sort of strata that that communication occurs in is not the primary thing to study, but the primary thing to study in biology is signaling systems and messaging, how DNA and RNA and these kinds of things, you know, build a creature, how that organism, you know, then uh, interacts with its environment, et cetera. And I was thinking of a way to tie this into my science fiction work. And I had written a few things. I wrote a short story called Eyes of the Forest, which was um, sort of experiment in some elaborate world building where the world consists of um, things that that give off light while they're alive. And so, um, and there are no predators, you know, in the world, but anything that ceases to be, to give off light is immediately scavenged. And so it's, uh, it's like this adventure story where, um, you know, the people who are attempting to live on that planet have to wear these suits that that give off light, you know, all the time. And anytime there's like any like area of darkness, they're immediately just set upon by these, uh, by by the inhabitants of this world. Um, I love that idea. That sounds very interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I, I think it's a it's a it's a fun story. It was also a story I wrote because someone was like, well, Ray Naylor writes these sort of languid philosophical stories and I was like okay well I'm going to write a story that is action from the moment the story begins until the moment it ends and never lets up and it's just like one punch after another and so that was eyes of the forest was also sort of a trying to like thumb my nose at at you know uh people's expectations of me as as a writer um and then I wrote another another one called albedo season um about like a moon a a population on a moon that is trying to figure out how to avert an ecological crisis and and how they might have contributed uh to it um has some obvious parallels with you know global warming and things like that but it's also about like sort of 
plant signaling and things like that. And I started getting really into this concept of, of communications and the difficulty of it. Wrote a couple more short stories in that, in that similar vein. And then I wrote a novella, um, which I have just kept back from, from publishing called The Atlas of Inhuman Color. And that novella was very much about some of the things that would grow into the mountain and the sea. So, so it was about this, uh, you know, attempt to establish communication between humans and another species that's attained symbolic communication. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in the mountain and the sea, it's an octopus. In I don't want to give too much away because I, I may, you know, use this novella later, but in, in the, the Atlas of Inhuman Color, it's a very different thing. But, but in fact, the main character of the Atlas of Inhuman Color, I recycled so much of them into Ha, the main character in the mountain and the sea that I had to hold it back because I need to, I would need to now go back and, and rewrite that protagonist to make them different from, from Ha. Gotcha. Well, and it's interesting because um, we have very different backgrounds, you and I, but like where our minds meet in this book kind of um, it's, it's funny um, because a lot of the things that you feel in this book, and you express in this book are things that were very near and dear to my heart as far as like views, but it's funny because, and, and I think it'll become clear to people as like we con in this discussion, but I just want to give a little bit of my, you know, where I come to this novel from, because I mentioned this in my review and I think this is important for how I, I took the book is that, you know, um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hardcore <laughs> militant vegan that came out of the vegan straight edge punk rock hardcore movement and uh you know got into things through bands like earth crisis and vegan reich and stuff like that and like in the late 90s there was this novel ishmael by daniel quinn i don't know if you've read it um but okay so i kept thinking about ishmael a lot when i was reading your book and the book Ishmael was very popular in our scene. In fact, there were people, right, bands writing entire concept albums about it, people getting tattoos and like it, it was, and the whole book is about a gorilla who puts an ad in the paper and says, uh, teacher looking for a student and the student shows up and the teacher's a gorilla and he's basically trying to tell him, hey, this is how you view the world. I want to tell you how we view the world and how you see it differently, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the whole, that, that whole book is basically trying to get humans to think, you know, outside of their thing. And it mm -hmm. was funny because the whole time I was reading Mountain in the Sea, I was like, if this book came out in the late 90s, <laughs> the hardcore scene would have adopted this book <laughs> like they did Ishmael, <laughs> because what you're, what I think is so special about this book is it challenges the way um, we as a species think about our planet. And I didn't know if, I had a feeling like whether that's how I interpret the book. Did you have a feeling that was going to be something that came out of this or do you even see it that way? Because I'm just telling you my interpretation from reading it, but I don't even know if that's an interpretation that that you you share, right? So, yeah, I 
Thank you. Uh, I'm really glad you liked the book so much. And I, I read the review and I, it was it was really very flattering. Thank you. Uh, um, I, I'm glad that I'm glad that it was, you know, it was intended to be a book that started conversations about things. And, and I really want I wanted it to be this. Uh, I mean, I really believe that a book should be this kind of opening up into conversations about about something. Like, I don't want the book to be didactic. I want the book to be a way of kind of asking lots of complex questions and, and getting the reader involved in continuing to think about those questions after they've closed the pages or while they're reading the book and having it more than be more than just an experience of sort of, you know, reading straight through the book, but rather like hopefully leaving them with something that they keep coming back to. Because I always think about fiction as having this possibility of being structured a little bit more like an album something that you can right. kind of continually come back to and enjoy rather than something that is just like a, a linear path through a narrative. And I wanted, I really wanted the mountain and the sea to be that. I mean, my own, my own personal viewpoint on these issues is that I don't think that human beings are really smart enough to understand how smart animals are. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, I, I, be, I try to be very careful about the way that I talk about this book because I constantly see it reviewed as a book about sentient octopuses. And, and I, I keep trying to, you know, correct people and say, if you want a book about sentient octopuses, you can read a book about octopuses. Right. Right. Because all octopuses are clearly sentient. You know, yes. sentience is most likely a function of um, complex choice making, like as choices that you, that it's possible for an animal to make become increasingly complex, consciousness has to rise up in order to make those decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So when you, so you can say that there probably is something that it is like to be an octopus that is quite clearly a consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. um, how far that goes down the chain in the animal kingdom is, is certainly like an open question. Like, is there something that it's like to be a tick, right? Is there something that it's like to be an ant, um, you know, to be a mouse? I think that there's probably a level beneath which like the threshold is that there's, there's things that are alive that aren't very sentient, right? Aren't very aware of, of life, but that's not, that's not a, a solved problem either, right? Right. Um, well, you know, uh, Stanislaw Lem in 1968 wrote uh, his master's voice. And that entire book, and that book is not one that most people will want to read because the entire book is about failed attempts at communicating with yeah. higher species. <laughs> and yeah. I, I did think about that book a little bit too when I was reading this one. And it's funny because that book kind of puts forward the idea that we may be the ticks, right? And we yeah, don't, yeah. we, and that book is basically just, we tried and we can't, we, yeah. we can't communicate with them. And that book is not one that you can be like, Hey, you're going to love this book. It's about a failure to communicate. Right. <laughs> right. 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 I, I actually like, so, so Stanislaw, uh, so Liam, I usually read in Russian because because um, I, I I'm, I'm I'm bilingual and speak Russian as well, and 
Um, Liam, I usually read in Russian because his Polish originals are well translated uh, it, into Russian. So I try That's to kind fascinating. of That's fascinating. That's myself. Yeah. And th those two languages are, are quite close. So a lot of the structures are going to be similar and stuff. And so I think you get closer to Liam um, by, by reading him in Russian than you would in English. And, but I haven't read that one in, in Russian. I have read uh, Return from the Stars, right? Okay. Um, which I think is a brilliant one. And I'm then, jealous of your ability to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's and then and then um uh invincible, right? Yeah, invincible. The, about the space the spaceship that gets it's basically he invents uh nanotechnology. Right. In in this like 50 years before anyone was thinking of, about it. It's quite it's quite extraordinary because it's like a this really good description of how sort of nanotechnology involves out of evolves out of larger technological structures, right? It's 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 fascinating. But so yeah, I, I think it's, uh, for me, what I wanted out of this book was, I, I was always like one of these really, these kids who was not so much asking the question why as asking the question how, right? Mm -hmm. Always been really interested in like the, the details about, about how things are done and how they happen. And I think that's what attracts me to science. I've always been really attracted to science, although that's not what I ended up getting my my degree in. It's not like that path that I pursued. It's always something I've been interested in because I'm I'm really fundamentally interested in like the difficulties of things and the the technical details. And my father's a hardware engineer uh yeah. in Silicon Valley and our our whole you know family practically was sort of saturated in in that engineering problem solving era of the 70s, 80s you know, and 90s and the aughts in Silicon Valley. He's now retired, but, you know, he was a part of all that. And I I would watch these fir first contact movies and I would read the books and I would and I would always come away a little bit cold and think, well, you know, that's great and it's very creative and I appreciate that, but I don't think it really attacks the question of how communication occurs and like the embodiment of meaning and all these things that we know about the difficulty of communication. And so I wanted to write a book that was more about the, the, the difficulties of that, but not to the point of his master's voice, like saying that's mm. fundamentally impossible. I mean, I do think that Lim was very embittered by the environment that he was writing in as well uh in, sure. in, in many ways and and he does you know i've read some, some of his like essays and commentary he was extremely dismissive of american science fiction um but but he also just was living in a very depressing situation of, of, well, of you know, communist poland and like this the eastern bloc um and so the way he sees the world is very grim and it comes across um I'm a little well, more and I, I will say though that in 115 episodes of this podcast, when I read Lenten, I usually read them in Russian, is the best humble brag on this show yet. Um, <laughs> I got to say, that's going to go down as. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, back to what you were saying about communicating with animals and 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 the level of animal sentience. For me, I had a situation where I became vegan 30 years ago. It just happens to be mm. that it's. My 30th anniversary was last January. Oh, and when I when I first became vegan back in the in 1993, I did an internship at Farm Sanctuary for a summer because somebody suggested to me, like, hey, if you're serious about this, like put your activism into 
you know, and now there's farm sanctuaries all over the country, but at the time there was, there was one, right? But, and when I went there for the summer, um, when I first became vegan, like I didn't really eat vegetables <laughs> and I had to like learn how to re-eat because like I had uh-huh. a terrible standard American diet. Mm-hmm. But, but one thing that happened to me there was now they had these cows that got massive because they weren't killed when they got to slaughter size, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they became enormous. And they had this whole herd that all hung out together. And there was a cow there named Jackson, who was kind of like this patriarch of the of the herd. Mm-hmm. And when Jackson died the summer I was there, he had a spot where he would go eat hay every morning that was like Jackson's spot. Mm-hmm. And the day after he died, all the cows like gathered around his spot and they started making the sound that I will never forget. Mm-hmm. And I admit at the time, I wasn't locked into being vegan. But when I saw that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it changed everything about how I saw the animal kingdom, basically. When I saw cows mourning, when I saw yeah. them having this horrible reaction to their, their friend being gone right yeah. and not being there and it just changed everything for how i saw things and i'm wondering because you do such a great job in this book of highlighting and you said it with like octopus like if you want to see their sentience just read about octopuses did you have a moment where the sentience of non-human animals became a more like something that you had to write about or something that you that you really wanted to express because you do so beautifully in this book. That's a really moving story about the cows. Um, Sorry. I think that, uh, no, no, I, I, I really, I, I thank you for that. It's actually really, um, it's, it reminds me that a lot of the ways in which we think about animals we probably think about them because they are so often pushed into these extraordinarily distancing industrial processes so we don't right. see them as as animals we just see them as as a as a product and um if i can have permission to kind of digress a little bit absolutely yeah you know, i would say that that's your seeing... book we're talking about <laughs> thank you seeing things as as products and being able to distance ourselves from them is probably one of the main universal um, flaws in modern society is that we're able to push so much of our consumption uh, and the and the underlying sort of structures that that produce those products of consumption away from us and and we don't have to feel for those things or have empathy for them. That 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 lack of involvement and that lack of connection to the the things themselves, right? That we are consuming and the ways in which they come into like they come past that screen of ignorance and then into our world for consumption is is a huge part of the problem. And the part in the mountain and the sea that's about the AI fishing vessel. You know, there's a there's a part during during that where there's a character who's enslaved on this on this AI fishing vessel, and this you will find out early in the book, so it's not really a spoiler. 
but there is a there's a part in which they sort of he sort of meditates one of the other characters meditates on the fact that once he had a normal life in which things like being enslaved on a fishing vessel were not popular and were not possible and then he fell through like a hole in the yeah. world into this other place where that became a possibility and he became a slave on that fishing vessel you know arguably one of the big themes in the book is really about trying to get beyond that veil of of ignorance and become involved in real ways in in what's real in in what i'd like to sort of push on people as the as the new realism like we have a concept of realism that's based around things like oh well you know maybe you don't think this is good for you but it's expedient so it's going to happen anyway so don't question it right or like chat gpt is a really good example or you know some of our other uses of ai or any sort of mechanization that takes jobs it's like well it's just you know be be realistic like these things are going to happen and so you're just going to have to get used to it i'd say that flipping that what realism really is is understanding that there are fundamental limits to what the environment can bear right and that animals have things like consciousness and feelings about their lives and that a lot of the things we don't care about nevertheless do not cease to be worth caring about right like we may have abstracted ourselves from the fact that we just tear cows bodies apart and consume them but that doesn't stop it from happening somewhere right from being real and and i think a new realism would be something like what William S. Burroughs suggests, right? The, in The Naked Lunch, seeing what is on your fork when you put it into your mouth and taking that as a wider metaphor, like recognizing what the consequences are of your existence on this planet, right? And, mm -hmm. and recognizing your attachment to the ecosystem and the, and the environment. These are not hippy-dippy sort of, concepts like this is real right like yeah your your plastics consumption has an impact on the environment you know all of these things have have an impact and anyone who has a pet knows that it's totally possible to communicate with animals we do it every day that they're woven into human society in fundamental ways that they have a being right that they have feelings they can be hurt um they can feel fear and pain they can they bear psychological scars from things that, that happen to them. They have uh, complex interactions with one another. Like we know these things. We just, yeah. we just don't, we don't know them when it's not, when it's inconvenient to us to know them, we forget them um, and we push them away from ourselves. And I think, you know, we need to live in a realistic manner and, and a realistic life is one that actually addresses what what we're doing to the planet and what its consequences are and not just shoving those aside and so it's the communi communi communication with animals has to come across this barrier of what we've done as a species right and that's sort of talked about in the book as well is like how how would an octopus see people right i mean people are a species that rips octopi out of their homes right and... Well, and the, the quote in your book is, we're monsters to octopuses, hunters, destroyers, killing their relatives, laying waste to their world. I had this ready. Um, <laughs> and they are monsters to us. Their motivations inexplicable. Their minds totally alien. Yeah. And that part, I mean, I quoted it in my review because 
it stopped me dead in my tracks because it it's a thing that's not new or like mind bending to me, but it's awesome to see it in a science fiction novel because I don't always see it there. Right. And yeah. yeah. And I hope other people who maybe don't have those thoughts all the time, get their mind open to those types of thoughts by reading this book. Um, and on that, I would ask the question, and I don't know if this is, this is a great segue, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think this book has a lot to say about what it means to think and to communicate. And I think in that sense, one of the, and believe me, I think the fundamental, the fundament, the fun, the foundation of storytelling and anybody who listens to 114 of my podcasts is already saying these words because I say it all the time. Parallels and reversals to mm. me is storytelling parallels and reversals. And one of the thing, the parallels in this story is all the AI stuff with the animal stuff. Like this book is talking about what it means to think and to communicate. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't have known that orcas were going to start sabotaging boats in Spain you probably didn't know when you wrote this that chat GPT would become a thing that like anybody could use, um, right. right? But your book became this ripped out of the headline thing, ripped out of the headlines thing with what does it mean for, you know, what is, you know, these parallels of thinking and communication, whether it's a machine or whether something we programmed or something we exploit. It was it was really interesting to see how the the discourse around the book changed. So when the book came out in October, it was a book about uh, you know an octopus and being able to communicate with an you know this species and trying to figure out its its communication methods. And by January, it was a book about AI, and uh, and it was fundamentally a book about Evrim, the 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 android in the in the book and it was only incidentally about octopuses and there were there was even a review that came out in the new scientist that never mentioned octopuses at all and fully focused on artificial intelligence which I, which I thought was really interesting just watching the way in which the book didn't change but the whole way that people were speaking about the book shifted um I think you hit the nail on the head, really. I mean, the book is about intelligence, communication, consciousness, and how we define those things and, and the difficulties of giving any of them a definition, right? Um, I, I think it's extraordinarily hard to define what consciousness is precisely because we live inside it and fundamentally don't understand it. There's a great line in um, She Walks the Night, I think is the name of the, of the book, and I may be getting that wrong, but it's William Sloan book collected in a, a recent New York, uh, a recent edition called The Rim of Mourning, in which there's two of his books collected, where there's a basically like a creature from outer space which possesses a woman, and and the whole book is about this possession and trying to prove that this this being is not a human, but is in fact this creature from outer space who marries one of the characters in the in the book and, and has a relationship with him for years. And there's a point in which that creature is found out and says, why 
are you so afraid of me? Like you claim to be afraid of me because you don't know where I come from, but you don't know where you come from. Right. And it's, it's just such an amazing moment of, you know, uh, like it's, it's, it's one of those like great moments where you get chills as a reader. Cause you're like, yes, like that, like, that's it. Like, that's the, the problem is like, no one understands where they came from and like what it, life is and where, you know, any of that. And yet we, often speak as if we don't live in this like totally bizarre mystery of consciousness that we don't understand right right and you you there you have a part in your book you have and you reminded me of two parts in your book one where you talk about um there's a i i didn't write this quote down um in my notes but basically that like our brains are kind of living in this like space that we don't really understand and in a w weird way, that's where we're living, right? But also, but you're segueing perfectly to this quote that I have from your book. We came from the ocean and we only survived by carrying salt water with us all our lives in our blood, in our cells. The sea is our true home. That is why we find the shore so calming. We stand where the waves break like exiles returning home. That is a beautiful quote, sir. That is... Uh, I had the exact same feeling you were talking about with that quote, reading that quote. Um, that is one where I stopped and I said to my wife, well, I was reading, she was across the room. I'm like, pause what you're watching. <laughs> Let me read you this quote. <laughs> and my, my wife, who does not like science fiction, Carrie, many times when I kept reading parts of this book, she's like, I have to read that one. Um, and, and I think, this concept of like, I love the idea that the shore is so calming because that's where we come from. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a documentary and a lot of people have become vegan because of it that Joaquin Phoenix narrated called Earthlings. And one of the concepts of Earthlings in that movie is to remind people like, hey, we're no different. We're all Earthlings. We're all mm -hmm. in this together. We have this one planet and this quote just marrying the unity of our species to the ocean was very powerful for me in reading this and elevates this book i think from just science fiction to science fiction philosophy which is you know philip k dick would have said many says many times like i'm more of a philosopher than a science fiction writer mm-hmm he said that all the time and i'm wondering like i don't think you set out to write philosophy in this but there are so many moments that i found philosophically um connecting you know i i didn't i didn't set out to so what i set out to do maybe in you're just book, expressing yourself i get it yeah yeah well yeah i said i set out to i i am reading a lot of more difficult sort of nonfiction works about consciousness and, and the human, you know, neural connectome and all of these things. And, and, and one thing that I did set about set out to do is to pull those influences into the book and translate them into a prose and uh, you know, like a way of expression that would be more palatable to, to people to read, because quite often these books are extremely mind expanding, but also very, very, very dense. 
and 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 people just bounce off of them because they're 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 filled with jargon um they're extremely dense they require a lot of background reading and in some cases before you even get get into them you know i mean another like one of them is um terence deacon's uh incomplete nature you know i've read i've spent 20 25 years reading books about semiotics and communications and that book was really hard for me to read like there were like pages I had to go back and read, you know, 15 times, like 20 times. But there were concepts that I wanted other people to have. Like I wanted them to, to have this concept of, um, you know, there's a quote in the book about meaning, you know, about, how, about marks on the, on the paper and how they become meaning in the world and how we just fundamentally don't understand how meaning works. It doesn't, it doesn't consist of energy. It doesn't have a charge necessarily. It, do, it involves no none of the scientific like things that we under that we understand and yet it, it alters reality right like you can read a book and it can fundamentally change the pathway of your life right yeah. and yet it didn't put anything in you right physically right it, it all occurred in some weird space that we don't understand well so i wanted to be this translator in some ways of things that I find, I find really philosophically interesting. Um, but I hate binaries, right? I hate the idea that because you do one thing, you can't do the other because, because this, then not that. And so, you know, someone had said to me, okay, well, but you can have a book that's really deep or you can have a book that's really, in, you know, fun to read. And I was like, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I, I was like, I feel like you can do both. Like, I, I feel like you can write a novel that is very philosophically gripping and that has like this, like a deep sort of sense of its own ethics and is grounded in, in those kinds of things, but is also a thriller and, and also, you know, has exciting scenes and interesting characters and that kind of thing. I feel like you can do those things. Yeah. I, I think it was done in 1968 with do androids dream of electric sheep, for example. Right. right? Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, and, I, I feel I feel like I, it, you don't have to choose, right? Yeah. We're still trying to unwrap the philosophical layers that, you know, Phil was doing in that book, like, years later. And, yeah. you know, and that book's very hilarious at the same time. So you can do it. And yeah. I think with this book is very entertaining for me. And, but I, at the same time, I find it entertaining to just have my brain stoked in that way yeah so yeah. so for me that was that was enough but i will say another feeling that this book gave me that i thought was really important is and and doing 30 years of animal rights activism off and on and having been somebody who's been trying to raise the alarm bells about climate change since 1993 believe me i've had a lot of moments of dark nights of the soul sure where where and this book has characters expressing like how fucking hard it is to live knowing how bad it is. Mm -hmm. And I just recently read um, Raw Deal, which is the Forbes reporter's book about the meat industry. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I didn't need to know any of that. I'm already converted. The choir right. has been preached to. But I wanted to get the latest information. And there were parts of it that were just really hard to read because also this woman's just justifying like why I'm still eating all this stuff. And and but for me, like it reminded me because I had just read your book 
of the scenes where the characters are like, you do not understand how hard it is to live with this knowledge, to know how how deep and how how hard it, it is. And I think it was really felt good that the books spoke to me that somebody understood like how like I've had that conversation with my sister like like it there are moments where in my activism where my wife and I've just just had to cry it out for a day because we're like holy shit it's so bad it is so bad and so your book expressed that and I just wanted to thank you for that I don't know if you have any I talked a lot it's not really a question (laughs) I, I appreciate that it's more like a conversation. I, I like I like that because I, you know, on, honestly, I sometimes come out of these podcasts feeling like this awful sense of just having spoken too much, which I, I get when you know I feel like I'm like dominating a conversation, and I'm very aware of like that. Well, I am yeah. here to hear from you, so <laughs> yeah. I mean, but 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 yeah, I I I think this deep sense of alienation from a society that's clearly like built upon some really weird stuff right it's natural in 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 people and and i think that um we don't give ourselves often enough space to deal with that i i grew up feeling very much like ha like ha is you know has huge pieces of me in 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 her right and right. i mean all characters are like that and altan setseg was my sort of you know way of commenting on also on like other ways i feel about communication and things with people um but you know i would tell people people say like well how could you live overseas for 20 years and i said like well you know the interesting thing about living overseas for 20 years is that for 20 years, I was a foreigner and I felt like a foreigner, of course, in all these situations. And I struggled, you know, for 15 of those years to just learn Russian, which is an extraordinarily difficult language. And I hammered away at it and chipped away at it and said thousands of stupid things and said things wrong and made mistakes and still make mistakes and and did all of this like stuff so that I could do things like read Stanislav in, in Russian, right? Or and come and brag on my podcast about it. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> those are those are hard won uh, skills that came with tons of embarrassment and feelings of like alienation. And there's not there's almost nothing I think in life more humiliating than trying to learn a foreign language. Um, you really you really get a sense of of how shitty you can feel especially when you're in an interaction with someone who's not really that interested in helping you communicate. Right. Um, and it gives you a great sense of empathy for people, but to come back to sort of what I was talking about, what I, what I say to people and, it, and it's true is yes, for 20 years, I lived overseas and was a foreigner and I felt like a foreigner for that entire time, but at least I had a reason yeah, for feeling like a foreigner because for the 27 years before that, when I lived in the United States, I felt like a foreigner every single day, but I had no good reason to account for that feeling. And so I felt like there was something wrong with me. And at least the moment I ended up in Turkmenistan as a Peace Corps volunteer, and no one could understand what I was thinking, and I was completely different from everyone around me, I had a reason for being completely different from everyone around me. And it actually felt good to be a foreigner, finally. Because I always had this like sense of like, you would start thinking too deeply about things. And you'd be like, wait a minute, 
what the hell is going on? Right. right? <laughs> like, like, why, why are we doing this? Like, what, what is this thing? You know, this like structure that we live in, like, why are we behaving this way? It's totally bizarre. You know, this moment where you felt like all of a sudden, everything around you was made of glass and you had just fallen through a panel of it into some bizarre like sense of like like what the fuck is elementary school and what am I doing on this playground with these like kids like hucking balls at each other's faces like how is this civilization right and then you come back to it and be like all right like like let's just go you know you'd be like the other kids and it's normal again and that feeling of being pulled outside of life you know and and kind of looking at it from this abstract perspective which i think is part and parcel with writing and and wanting and being an artist and being a writer and, and all those things that part of that is like the sense of abstractedness like this ability to like withdraw oneself a layer back or two layers back and look at things critically in a way that allows you to put them together in interesting ways and, and show them to other people i think that's that's a part of creativity but like that's also like a part of just our general feeling, I, I think, that of, of alienation that we don't confront enough, right? And so part, and part of the, the mountain and the sea is like really asking this question about like, well, how well do we actually communicate anyway with one another? Um, there's a great, and I hope that everyone who listens to this podcast will go and, and, and read it. There's this great um, uh, psychological essay. It's, it's sort of an early study in sociology called they saw a game and it is it's a it's a it's a brilliant piece of writing because it's actually very beautifully written uh it's and i'm, I'm forgetting who the authors of it, it of it are it was published in the 40s i believe and it's about a football game between yale and it's not yale and harvard but it's two ivy league football teams and the game gets really violent um and it's an, it becomes an infamously violent game but it's also it's filmed, so they have a record of it. But the the two psychologists or sociologists go around and ask different people who watched the game what happened and who was to blame for the violence and like the chaos on the field. And the conclusion that they come to at the end of, of the study is that no one actually saw what happened on the field and that there was no game played that was viewed by people instead every single person that they interviewed saw a completely different set of events unfold and remembered it totally differently hmm. and, and trying to reassemble all of those points of view back into reality just didn't cohere right sounds like american politics right now <laughs> right <laughs> it really does it really does and we live in a world right in the united states right now where a person can just go into a school and slaughter people with this military weapon, which by the way, I've fired, right? And yeah, uh, on full I have too. and I'm and I'm well acquainted with. And it's a it's a murder weapon. That's it what absolutely it is. Yeah. It's what it was designed for, top to bottom. Um, you know, and there's and there's but it's 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 so disturbing to me that we're so abstracted against that kind of like that again that sort of veil of ignorance right that that we're able to pull that straight up to our faces as a country have these children butchered blown to pieces and do nothing right well and you're re and i'm gonna segue on the power of science fiction and i'm kind of 
also um, promoting the next episode of this podcast that comes out after yours, which is we're doing a debate on the best science fiction novel of 1968. I've already recorded it. And uh, in that year, John Bruner wrote a, uh, the Hugo Award winning novel that year was Stand on Zanzibar, which wow. predicted mass shootings um, okay. as a part of the Rat Pack mentality of what would happen with overpopulation. And he nailed it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, 50 years later, uh, I consider it the best science fiction novel of the 20th century. Um, you know, we got a lot of 21st century to go, but one of the best science fiction novels I've read of this century is Mountain in the Sea. And what it does, similar to what Bruner was doing in, in Zanzibar, is try to extrapolate what our future will look like based on what we're seeing today. Yeah. And one of the things that you talk about in here, in this book, and it's funny how you talked about how it changed with the AI, there's a part where this kind of Elon Musk figure of, of AI is talking to a group and and has this hilarious, to me, I laughed a bunch reading it, speech about, you know, um, you know, what AI means to us and why we have all these guilt fantasies about AI rising up and, and killing us all. And it's partially because we, in, in, in the quote, at the part of it is, if robots don't rise up, if our creations don't come to life and take power, we have used so badly for so long. Uh, what we fear isn't that the AI, AI will destroy us, we fear it won't. And it's mm-hmm. like this idea that imagining like the terminator is this scenario of like well look how bad it got so we need them to kind of come get us and this character is kind of suggesting that it's like a revenge fantasy and Mm -hmm. such an interesting point that and i know you're you're writing this from the perspective of this interest this character who does not think like you do right but it, it was such a fascinating part of the book because i think it is so curious for us to think about what those AI, those all the robot apocalypse novels that like the mm. AI is coming to get us things like, and you hear people all the time, even the godfather of AI just recently was on, on the New York times podcast saying like how dangerous Chad GPT could become if it, if we give too much power, right. It's right. The godfather of the science, right? Yeah. 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 And I am. Uh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, no, no, I was done. I, I talked too long. You know how I'm trying not to. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I really believe that's what it is. In fact, um, I think that there is this. There are two different kinds of of dystopian sort of apocalypse fantasies. I think one is the like um, humankind getting its getting what it deserves right from from the world that it has done horrible things to and i think that's one strain that we really see a lot of in say like mid-century up until now um you know apocalyptic fictions is like us being forced to confront what we've done and then that guilty i wrote one of those right i mean (laughs) and and I, I'm like, let me be, let me be very clear. I am not denigrating this this genre at all. <laughs> um, the other one, I think, is really interesting. Is oh, I'm proud of that book, but yeah, <laughs> the re, the reclaiming of um, 
of manhood and physical strength from its like uselessness um, by creating these apocalyptic like zombie sort of scenarios in which like being a, a strong leader and being able to do things like shoot a gun and uh, you know all this like physical stuff and 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 corral people into a group and all of that becomes meaningful again right yeah in this world when we eliminate all of these these abstractions and these constructs that have allowed allowed for a large degree of equality right and we return to some kind of imagined primitive state in which being the like you know I mean let's be honest sort of white male like patriarch becomes like this legitimated like reality again. So there's those fantasies too, which which point out to the point out the fact that, you know, largely I think preppers are not people who are afraid the world will end, right? There are people who are actively hoping for the end of the world so that their lives will be meaningful right? in some way that they that they find they're not in in the complexities of modern society, right? So those are sort of two fantasies and and the mountain and the sea kind of deals with the the prior one a little more right like this idea that that we will get what is coming to us or that what we what we desire from ai and from other minds is for them to to force us back from the brink in a way maybe right or punish us for what we've done and and contain us in some way because we can't contain ourselves the well, same like that, the AI that instantly started becoming racist because it like read the internet. And right. Yeah. It, 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 it's like the whole thing of like, I think what the mountain in the sea does so well is it, 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 it looks at the idea of in the eyes of other intelligences, here is a mirror and what it says about us. And right. that's what I think the book does so well. And, I'm, I'm sorry i'm kind of mansplaining your book to you um <laughs> no but, no I, no you're talking to you're talking to other to other folks um you know who are listening and i i, I get that well I get that. and i i uh i just think it's that's what it does so well and i i'm so excited that well you know it, it was it just um it's funny because i told you i went into it cold i didn't know anything about the plot or anything like mm-hmm. i just I just kept seeing people I trusted on Twitter saying this book's amazing. This book's amazing. So I put it on hold at the library and I got to buy my own copy so I can read it multiple times. Um, but I put it on hold at the library and when it showed up, I was like, I didn't even remember why I had put it on hold, which is my system, by the way. So I go into books cold. I'm like, I knew I had a reason why I read this. Or I wanted to read this. Now it's here. And what was so cool is, is that when I got into it, I didn't have any preconceptions about, because I didn't read the back blurbs. I didn't read anything. I just Good. started reading. So um, I'm like an ideal reader in the sense that, um, you know, I went into it as as bare and naked as I could. And the idea is just like, when I figured out what was going on, um for me like it was just it was it was a revelation purely like i i just i can't say enough about how good it is so before we get we're going to do a spoiler warning and do a tiny short spoiler section before i let you get back to your evening but is there anything before we get into spoilers that we want to um 
that you really want to say to to people listening um out there and they you know they're not necessarily my listeners they may be they may have come here looking for you specifically but you know what do you want people to know about mountain in the sea what are people getting wrong because i i know you said something about how the discourse has been it's kind of funny how it's changed is there anything people have been missing that you really wish people would pick up on because a book this deep and this thick like not everyone's gonna get everything right yeah i <laughs> i i not I to know. insult people that no they no no it. no um <laughs> you know I, i'll just put it this put it this way um i will not talk down to my readers um yeah. if if there's if there's one thing that I fundamentally believe as a writer and maybe this like will tell you whether you'll love or hate my you know my book is that um, a book is is truly a conversation between two people you know a, a one writer and one reader and both of those people need to come to that conversation with a, a genuine interest in in participating in something new and creating something new uh, together and, and so when you say that you came to it without preconceptions, you know, I've said before that the way I wish everyone would find the mountain in the sea is like on a beach with its covers ripped off and no idea of who had written it or anything, just these pages with, you know, just its content there. Um, because the marketing and, and all that stuff, it's it's extraneous to the, the text. So if as a reader, that's what you want from a book, I think think you'll find it rewarding, but that's not a guarantee because, you know, um, it may not be for you, but for people like you who really enjoyed the book, I would, you know, I would say like very honestly, like, and not meaning this in any sort of cheesy way. I'm so glad that you liked it because I wrote it for you, mm -hmm. right? Like this book has an audience and that audience are the people who are, who react that way to the book. And there has been a good number of them. I mean, I've gotten a lot of really nice letters from people you know saying that they were moved and and that's a huge uh compliment like, and there's also people who hate it and that's also fine because i don't think i wrote it for them um, well it's funny because when i posted the review like there were a couple of my friends who responded like it sounds good but it can't possibly be as good as you're saying it is <laughs> i was like i was like no it can <laughs> I don't do hyperbole lightly. And I, and, and look, I said this in my review, I think in a, in a, in a, in a just world, there would be, you know, people getting tattoos at the book cover and uh, people with that, with the cover, with the copy of the book under their shoulders as they go to Congress to fight climate change. And, um, you know, uh, people should be reading it in tree sits and on sea shepherd boats and, um, you know, that's, that's the way, you know, or on the plane ride to work for their non-governmental agency or for NOAA yeah. to study the whatever, that's who needs to be reading it. Because to me, the message is, 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 is all there. It's all mm -hmm. there. So before we get into spoilers, I just want a, a last little thing to say, I ain't fucking around folks. I think this is one of the best science fiction novels I've read, period, but um, definitely of the 21st century. Um, it's it's really, really, really good stuff. It's 
it's one it's a it's a thinker it's one that you will go back to and um right there on the shelf for me with like Stephen Graham Jones the only good Indian and one that should be taught not just read and I'm not just saying that because this dude's here um um but I I'm saying it to all you all out there I had him on because of how important I think this book is anything you want to say before we go to spoilers spoilers should be quick this time I don't have a lot I'm kind of I'm kind of speechless thank you (laughs) well uh on that note folks um uh just one last plug before I get into uh I was trying to do a similar thing with the last night to kill Nazis. It sounds like it's a bunch of action and fun. It is, but I'm also trying to get you. Um, I was inspired by all the rise in anti-Semitism that was happening in the last couple of years mm. and um, uh, wanted to write a fun book in response to it. And there's a lot of deeper issues going on about how we deal with the Holocaust. So I just wanted to say too, I'm not just writing dumb shit either. So <laughs> I'm trying to have fun too, but trying to make points so on that note let's get into spoilers this is your spoiler warning and one of the main things i wanted to talk about in the spoiler warning is that there is a reveal that happened for me in the book that i talked about in my review that i thought will happen for different people at different times and i was wondering how much this was baked into how you wrote the narrative and this might come down to you being a you know a crime writer and your you know your other interests Mm -hmm. but the rev- I didn't realize that the main character, the main AI characters who are AI characters were AI for a long time in the story. And uh-huh. I realized that there were probably hints and clues all along, but I was two thirds of the way through the book when I was, when it was like said outright that Ha was speaking to, um, a, a uh, to an AI. And I was like, Oh shit. Okay. That makes sense. But I mm-hmm. didn't realize that, that, that I just thought this is Ha's friend. This is who she's mm-hmm. talking to. I mm-hmm. didn't think anything about it being an AI until two thirds of the way through the book. Was that intentional in, in the writing of the narrative or did that, was yeah. that a happy accident for this reader? No. Yeah. That was intentional. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I meant for people to, to, to think that, that Ha had this, you know, uh, partner that she was speaking to. Um, the only, the only way that the, the only way I wanted, like, I always want, I, I give, I give people like a, like a very small hint because some people feel really rewarded by like figuring things like that out early and yeah. then other people don't. And, and the only like very small hint that's there is that, um, this is a secure space, right? This Island. And there's yeah. just no way that they're going to be allowing any sort of two-way communication to be occurring between Ha and someone off the Island, given the like way it's locked down. Right. Right. And the explanations just don't really add up. So, so like clearly, like the idea that there would be a broad, like a channel to someone off the island, like that's the only thing that would, like you would have to sort of pause at some point and start thinking about that, and then go like, wait, 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 and kind of follow that all off into Rustem's thread, right? And then and then pick up on like somehow on you know on like okay, wait, maybe this is a point five. Right. Uh, right, but no, it's not. It's not meant to be obvious. Um, I did know it from the beginning, like this. Even though I'm, I'm, I'm sort of. I only usually outline about four chapters or five chapters at the most ahead. This was something that that I knew from the beginning. So he, he wasn't. Oh, okay. Like a so that's a, that's an interesting process thing. You outline just to a certain point, and yeah. then do you stop and then outline four chapters and then do the next four chapters? Is that how you? Is that how you do it? 
generally that's how I did this book. So I would do about five chapters ahead, these little kind of one paragraph descriptions of what I wanted to happen in that chapter. And then I would write those chapters and then I would do another five chapters and or so and, and write those chapters. Um, I also, I mean, sometimes I would get further ahead in my thinking and then uh, sometimes I would only be one or two chapters ahead maybe. That's interesting. So when I outline, I outline the whole book, but I consider it a living document and I make changes constantly all the time. And, and, um, I, I, uh, I, uh, I talk about this in unfinished BKD, but, um, like that, I, Joe Hill, you know, Stephen King's son, they're so into pantsing and they're so anti-outline that Joe mm-hmm. Hill literally has a character in the fireman say something about burning outliners at the stake when they're talking about do uh, planning a rescue, it's the it's the weirdest thing to be that against outlining. <laughs> but I, um, it's so it's, I, so, it's so funny because what what I I personally think that you're still discovering the book, right? Even if you just and it sounds like what you're doing is you're you're allowing yourself to only go a little bit ahead, right? Yeah, and it's it's I, I guess I want like a combination of. Um, you know, uh, I like to have a little bit of, of a sense of where I'm going. Uh, and then I, I don't feel married to that either. You know, if something comes up that changes the, the structure of the book, then it comes up. One thing that came up in the mountain and the sea that was really interesting to me is, is Evram. Like, I literally was writing that scene and Haas walking down the beach. Um, and I had no idea who the third person on the island was going to be. And then Evram yeah. just kind of rose up out of the sand almost. I was like, yeah. oh, it's me. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that kind of completed the the book in a way because like that, like you were saying, that sort of juxtaposition with the uh, octopus intelligence and, and Evram as this, you know, sophisticated AI who doesn't know whether they're conscious or not. That was like this, the, the, that allowed me to do this kind of dialectical, you know, plot line, um, through line through that in that main space. And, and so that was neat how that happened. And that really surprised me. And then I had to go and rejigger my whole outline, you know, uh, cause that had changed the book. Um, with the Tusks of Extinction, which is the book that comes out in January. Um, and it's a novella from, from tour.com that book I actually sold before I wrote it. Yeah. And, um, and so I had to provide them with like a synopsis and that was like so painful to write a, a synopsis for a whole book because I have this problem where like, so, so my thing is, even though I will outline, I will never talk about a book that's in progress with anyone mm. because I feel like if I tell the story and then I just, I pull all the energy out, like it saps me from, from telling the story on the page. And so I won't usually discuss it except with my wife. That's my exception is she's my sort of first reader and we can bounce ideas off of each other. And I feel comfortable in that space. But telling it to every like people will say, what are you working on? And I'm just like, nah, like I can't, I'm not going to talk about that. Um, it's not until I'm done with the thing that I can talk about it. So, well, I actually, I love writing outlines and synopsis so much to the point that I literally have hundreds of them that I will never write. Um, well, that's cool. Yeah, I just, um, I, a lot of times it's the ones that I can't stop thinking about that become novels later. My, um, um, uh, and this novel was nominated for the Splatterpunk Award for Best Novel, but my my uh, ecological dystopia, Ring of Fire, from Dead Eye Press, uh, that was one that I uh, 
thought about for 15 years. I outlined it probably 13 years before I wrote it. And then it's just one that never went away. I just kept thinking about it, kept thinking about it, having ideas. And then I realized I had to do a lot of research for that one. So like when I was about a year out is when I got hardcore about the research, but I, I tinkered with that outline off and on for 15 years. And then there's some where I'll outline them in a day and then never think about it ever again. And then um, it's funny, just the other day, there was one I outlined 15 years ago I hadn't thought about. And at, at one point in that, that time, but something somebody said to me caused me to go look for it and say, maybe I should write mm -hmm. that one. Mm -hmm. So you never know. But I enjoy outlining. But so back depends, to Mountain right? on the Sea, because this is why we're here. Um, the multiple characters. And when you decided you wanted to have the characters who were on the AI fishing vessel and you kind of had to you had to switch POVs and all that. Did you put much thought into kind of kind of having a rhythm for that? Because I find when I do multiple characters, I have to establish a rhythm like i'm going back to them every certain number of chapters or something yeah I, I played around with that rhythm quite a bit so i did uh in the editing process change the chapter orders and uh and do and do some things to get that right so i kind of i had my beat that i was kind of going through and then i went back and sort of syncopated it a little bit more um because i wanted the reveals to occur in a slightly different order and some of the, when I say reveals, I also, I also mean sometimes like philosophical stuff. Like I wanted to get to like a, like a philosophical point sometimes a little earlier in the, in the book, in one of those three tracks that, that are, that are in the novel. Um, so I, I played around with a little bit of that. And then when I gave the book to my agent, I got, when I got the agent, um, you know, for this book and then uh, Seth Fishman, who's really fantastic. Um, and he read it and we did a little bit of a, of a rewrite as well um because he want you know he wanted to see some things like wrap up differently and, and tie together it's and he was great about pointing out some things that i could link up that i hadn't even thought about and then i also redid some of the chapter order um you know one of the things that i that i did for example was like in the first draft of the mountain in the sea rustem doesn't show up until like chapter 10 and um and so I pulled that back and I think it's chapter five that he shows up in now. So no, it uh, makes more sense to introduce another character that much earlier because then it establishes the character for yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you know, I I'm I'm quite often like really unconcerned with like dramatic arcs. I feel like they just like I try not to think about them too much because I don't want to, you know, burden myself with that. And well, I don't agents really and editors are good for that too. So that, that will yeah. remind you. Yeah. So, so, you know, I'm, I'm in that process right now. I just finished my second novel and, uh, and gave it to Seth and then he read it and and now he's given it back to me with some of his like comments. And so, I mean that, and again, it's just, it's, it's nice. Now we're in a more trusting relationship because it's the second book or third yeah. book, really, uh, including Tusks of Extinction. And so um, it's nice to be able to bounce that off of, of him and, and I feel like, you know, one of the things that I've learned as a foreign service officer and just in my day job in general is um, you need to allow people to do what they're good at. And and so, you know, quite often Seth will say like, well, what do you think about this kind of like thing? And I'll say like, well, you are a literary agent and this is clearly like what you are good at. And so what I want to hear <laughs> is what do you think about yeah. this? Because I know what I'm good at and that's not it. <laughs> right. right. Like, um 
but but you know part of that is you know his understanding of the book from a readerly perspective is superior to mine because you know when you're writing your own book you're both writer and reader but you're a weird reader yeah own work right you can't feel sometimes the the gaps right and i usually try to pick an ideal reader in my head and here's a weird trick i do which is i like i have a friend mark rothenberg who's one of my oldest literary book talk friends that we talk about books and i often think about mark when i'm writing because i think about like and it's dangerous sometimes to think about one person but for me like every once in a while i'll think to myself i'll imagine mark sitting there and being like that's too on the nose and mark will give me hell for it and a lot of times things go away because uh, or things get fixed or things get better and uh I, I sometimes send him messages and say, oh, uh, a couple of years from now, you're going to be really excited about something I just did. <laughs> like, um, but it's just funny. It's just a weird tick that I developed um, for writing, but it just, it works for me. But one thing I really want to get to really quick before we go is SB Divya's Machine Hood. And I'm pointing out in the shelf as if anyone can see my copy of it. Uh, which is a science fiction book I really liked from a few years ago. She, a lot of that book is about AI rights and machine, like machine rights. Uh-huh. And so there's a, a um, an AI declaration of rights in that's quoted throughout the book, similar to how, how oceans think by Ha is, is quoted throughout the book. And she wrote that entire declaration and she did a whole thing where she, you know, like did the thought exercise of writing it as you know how this could be presented to like the government basically Uh of ai rights and i wondered throughout because and i i outed myself on this but when i was reading your book and i first saw the first quote the how oceans think i went to goodreads and tried to search for how oceans think because i thought it was a real book that was being quoted because i didn't like notice that it was the character's name at first Right, sure, and yeah. I was like super bummed. I'm like, oh wait, this isn't a real fucking book. <laughs> <laughs> this was he made it up for this. And then I realized it was the character and then felt super dumb. Mm. Uh, but how much of how oceans think did you think through? Did you think about her writing it? Did you structure that book or did you just write the quotes as you came to them? So there's a there's a book called How Forests Think. Which which is in the acknowledgments, um, and uh, and how oceans think is a bit of a, like a riff on that yeah. on that book, and then a bit of a riff on on this book, Other Minds, uh, which is about octopuses. What I, what I tried to do was um, think through some of the quotes and stuff. Like how oceans think is a very dense sort of philosophical uh, book, and then and then Other Minds as well is like pretty pretty decently dense nonfiction. I tried to sort of think about some of the points that they made that I found had had affected me and then how I could pass them through Ha's character in in a way that would make them readable and exciting for a reader and you know as if they had been plucked from a larger text but there is no larger text I'm not SB Divya um yeah. I did not I did not do that um and there's you know, there's there's two books. There's like there's also Building Minds, which is by uh, Doctor Arnkatla Minerva Daughter Chan, the sort of 
Elon Musk character, although, you know, I have a lot more sympathy for her than that. And I think she's a better person than he is. There's um, a lot more Elon Musk in uh, We Can Build You, the book we talked about earlier. Yeah. If you go yeah. back and read that, it's... Uh, I you know, I should, I should. Uh, I haven't read that in, in, in decades and I really should go back and read it. But yeah, I am... Um, I, I did not do that, and I, I and I tend not to overdo backstory. Yeah, in general. there's no right answer on doing that, right? No, yeah. Um, whatever I'm comfortable with. What I do a lot of is research. So in order to write a book, I probably re read. I probably read a hundred books for this book, at least. Yeah. Uh, and that's about typical for me. And then with Tusks of Extinction, which is like half this long, it literally was still like. I think I read 60 books to read, to write that book. And, uh, you know, I, it just goes on like that, but the research is really pleasant to me. I love it. I, I love learning new things and being a writer is such a great excuse to learn a bunch of like stuff that no one else gets to like dig into. It's wonderful. Right. I had that experience with ring of fire is one of my favorite research experiences. And it's a long story, but something that I got involved with was because I live in San Diego and I'm a big football fan. And I was somehow, because I had this activism experience with environmentalism and animal rights, when the Chargers were threatening to leave, I suddenly was like the only Charger fan that had activism experience. And I suddenly got involved with like trying to keep the team here and uh -huh. ended up at a meeting at the mayor's office. And here I am writing this disaster novel that takes place in San Diego. And I'm sitting in the mayor's office. And one day I just look at the at the my contact at the mayor's office, Marshall, and I said, Hey, just just wondering, you know, who develops your master plans for like disaster, you know, whatever? And he's like, Oh, it's blah, blah, blah. And he's like, our we call him the master of disaster. And here's his number. <laughs> and I'm awesome. like, you know? <laughs> and one of the things that happened with that book was people kept telling me how all the scenes at the mayor's office seemed so realistic and it's like i would just sit there and say to marshall like so if there was a wildfire on each side of the city right <laughs> you do and i had all these experiences where like this stupid football shit that i was dealing with like ended up like being like a boon for research and i'm sure for you like working for the intergovernmental agents or for the international agencies that you did you probably had a hundred experiences that led oh yeah to oh yeah mountains in the sea so many right? yeah so many of them yeah and and that's that's also why like i've always said i love my day job because my day job feeds my writing and vice versa so you know i i don't see moving away from from that and becoming a full-time writer anytime soon because that's just where i get that's where that's where like a gasoline comes into the engine from right it's like that I, that's my fuel is is all those interactions um i should just warn you that uh my coach is going to turn into a pumpkin soon uh, no 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 we're we're, we're getting, getting, um, we've we've got <laughs> we've got a lot uh, we've gone very far and i was trying to wrap it up here so uh ray a fantastic conversation. Um, I think a lot for, for readers to chew on. Um, and uh, I'm probably gonna, I, I'm looking forward to reading your tour novella and possibly talking to you then because I had such a wonderful time talking to you about this. Um, 
is there anything else you want to communicate to people with this last uh, few moments? No, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd just say, you know, thank you, David. I, I really, uh, I enjoyed this conversation a lot. I, I genuinely did. And uh, I'm so, uh, so glad that you, that you enjoyed the book. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, for the people who, who get that much out of it, you know, again, it's like, it's, it's, it's a great feeling as a writer, you want, you want people to get you right. That's why you do it is you, you want to be, you want to be understood. I think that's kind of like fundamentally a big part of why we do what we do. And um, it feels good. It feels good to make those connections. It feels great to have these conversations. Well, as somebody who lives six blocks from the Pacific ocean here in San Diego, um, I had a really powerful moment. There was one point where I was reading your book. I was about halfway through. My wife said, do you want to go for a run? And I had a moment where this novel, like as I was running on the beach and I just, I thought about that part where, where that I read that quote to you because I had just read that line. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, your novel hit me in a way that uh, is almost hard to explain. Um, and I'll, And I kept bringing up Ishmael because that's the last time a, a, a book really warped my thinking. It's not your book is a better novel. <laughs> the better narrative. Ishmael is almost less like philosophical ideas tied together with no, little sure. to no story. Sure. And um, but what I thought was great about your book is that I got as much philosophical thoughts out of it, and it was a it was a perfect narrative. So um, you know, I I think all the awards should be thrown at you um and should be back on that shelf behind you in the near future um whether they are or not uh i don't know but i would vote for you for everything um you uh knocked the ball out of the park well done sir and um folks find that book uh and find the next ones um let's make sure we get more science fiction out of ray naylor um, let's make sure he never wants to write crime fiction again because he's so satisfied with the reaction <laughs> from you science fiction folks. Because um, we want more of this this weird stuff. I would read your crime novels. I probably will if they're already out there. But um, I because I, uh, I will follow a good writer to any genre. But I really like your science fiction. Thank you, Ray, for joining us on Postcards from a Dying World. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me.